listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 189. In this edition, we're going to hear from a transnational gathering of labor activists in Erie, Pennsylvania. But first, the news. A couple of weeks ago, a group of federal workers rallied on a corner in the nation's capital. They were flanked by a giant inflatable rat and a figure in a ballooning Trump costume. It looked like a typical scene, your run-of-the-mill labor protest, but there was a twist. These are staffers at the National Labor Relations Board. Yes, the agency that oversees private sector unions and workplace rights across the country. The staffers were fed up with seeing their own union rights systematically eroded by the Trump administration. The NLRB staff have long struggled with overstretched resources and a steady attrition of their ranks, but there's also been an acute tension between the career civil servants at the agency and the agency heads appointed by Trump. And the Trump administration has delivered an even more direct blow with three executive orders. They were first issued in mid-2018, but are only now coming into full effect after a court injunction was lifted. They aim to restrain federal employees' union-related activities. Their measures would effectively bar federal workers' unions from using their agency's official time for engaging in basic union-related activity, and they'd be barred from using the agency's official space and facilities. The executive orders have affected many federal agencies, but the NLRB unions have accused the NLRB chair, John Ring, and general counsel, Peter Robb, for refusing to bargain in good faith over how to implement the orders. The unions also accused the Trump administration of systematically shrinking the staff, largely through high attrition rates and a lack of new hiring, and they accused the agency of deliberately withholding funds that have been allocated by Congress. I spoke with Karen Cook, president of the NLRB Professional Association, and Adam Neal, who runs legislative affairs at the NLRB PA, against the backdrop of a noisy rally outside the NLRB headquarters on Half Street in D.C. Can you just talk a little bit about how the executive orders have affected the NLRB specifically because many agencies have been affected? We so. are, we have two unions here at the agency, yeah. the Professional Association, which represents FOIA specialists and staff attorneys at headquarters, and then there's the NLRBU, which represents the all the employees in the field and the administrative professionals at headquarters. We are both independent unions. We're each independent unions. We have no paid staff. In order to function as representatives of the employees who are in our units, we depend entirely on volunteers. Mm -hmm. And so to take away um, official time you know, to, to talk with people about their grievances, to prepare their grievances, to even prepare for bargaining on those few occasions when the agency decides it's going to bargain with us. We have no time to do that. We have to now take leave or take uh, leave without, leave without pay, pay or, or annual leave. Right. I'm on leave without pay today. So am I. Right. Yeah. Um, other unions at least have paid staff and space where, you know, representatives can come in. So the acute effect on us, we feel it, I think, more than any other union. I, I'm sure that everybody is catching how all the other unions, SEIU, you know, um, Treasury and whatnot, but yeah, it is really... Federal government employees already are constrained in a number of ways. And so I guess, like, what would the long-term effect of this be just to uh, further shrink and narrow the scope of what any kind of federal yeah, employee and the, union and employee can do? Rights and yes. their, what employees, with the rights the federal employees have in the, you know, in relation to their governments. I mean, this is not sort of like the resistance type of stuff. Yeah. We have our own feelings about what they're, they're doing with private sector and federal labor law. But we have folks here that 
uh, agree with them about what they're doing and 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 are different views. We have different views about those things within the PA and the BU. And we are but it's about right. You know? But it's about our rights and their sort of depriving us of what our rights right. are under the law. Total and so dismissal. we have no real recourse but to stand up and fight back as I was explaining. Um, will there be a long-term detrimental effect on the agencies? And I believe they will because some of the appointments are going, you know, some of the appointees will be here even after 2020, assuming that, you know. Right. right. I mean, the general counsel will still be in yeah. office because yeah. right. exactly. he and is there for a whole year. Um, and, you know, if, if these things are in place and we're not able to do, if we have to live under these unlawful rules, it's, it's really, I mean, an existential threat to, I think, our unions and any model other than, you know, paying union dues to uh, organize to an external organization rather than sort of this voluntary sort of self-made union type of thing, you know, to the homespun union. That was Karen Cook and Adam Neal of the NLRB Professional Association. Hello from London, where I'm here to cover the election, but it wouldn't be a trip to London without a trip to some picket lines. This week, I visited striking university lectures at Queen Mary University of London, which was a part of massive strike action across the country by lecturers, librarians, office administrators, and graduate student teachers who make up the University and College Union, or UCU. I spoke with Claire English, who I last met this fall on a panel about emotional labor and post-work politics, about why she's on strike. Apologies for picket line noises, but we like to think it makes us sound authentic. I'm Claire English. I teach at Queen Mary University of London, which is one of the 57 campuses that are on strike uh, over the next eight days. And we are on strike for a number of reasons, partly because of a pension dispute that's been ongoing. We were also on strike in January 2018. Uh, over the same degradation of our pensions and that was one issue and the other issue is related to pay and conditions so uh, problems with the gender pay gap uh, the BAME pay gap um, BAME for American uh, black and minority ethnic workers which in my university at Queen Mary is kind of a particularly staggering uh, gap. So the difference between what a white man on average earns uh, at Queen Mary and what a black woman earns uh, at our university is 31%. So a pretty kind of staggering, uh, staggering statistic there. But also uh, the strike is about workloads, just incredibly long workloads, uh, and also casualization. Yeah. Uh, which is a issue close to my heart, as I am someone on a rolling 12-month contract. Yeah, so tell us about that, and I mean, this is familiar, certainly, for, for anyone who is familiar with working conditions at an American university, but... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess uh, what we're talking about is the, the way that neoliberalism has crushed our dreams. It takes a lot of years in a lot of institutions to get you to PhD level, and, you know, I completed my PhD when my twins were 18 months old so it was something that I kind of really had to stagger through working evenings and nights uh, in order to uh, to complete and then I went from there to a uh, research associate job that was uh, two days a week and then from there to the job that I have now which is an associate lecturer um, where uh, I've been there since January 2018 um, 
and they keep kind of trying to keep me on by so I started as a teaching fellow and then the next semester they said okay we made you an associate lecturer and then this year they said they've made me a core module leader none of these things give me any more money or any more stability what they do do is uh, take the kind of work that people on permanent contracts ought to be doing right uh, away from them so that's that's kind of where I'm at and yeah we earlier met the casualization rep but as she as she points out it's really isolated it's hard to speak to other casuals and find out what their conditions are and yeah we should be arguing for any better or any worse yeah I always find it interesting that like the moment of being on strike is almost the moment where you meet other people who are in your same conditions yeah absolutely absolutely uh, and I think you know there's an element of shame about uh, yeah having got a PhD and been working for a number of years and still being on uh, temporary contracts. So I think, you know, you pass people in the hall and you don't necessarily tell them about the working conditions uh, that you're on. Right. Uh, because you wish you were you were regularized, right? You wish that you had access to sick pay and, uh, you know, paid holidays and uh, the right to do some research uh, as part of your role. Yeah. Um, and so you don't talk about it. So it's been an amazing experience uh, to be on the picket and to be hanging out with a casualization rep only to find that there are so many other people in the yeah. same position uh, as me. Um, and all of us, you know, being jerked around in terms of our pay, getting paid a month late, six weeks late at the beginning of term, not getting our contracts until well after we started teaching. Uh, us being told that we'll have five hours of seminars and then student numbers change and you only get three. You know, these kinds of things happening uh, all the time um, that, yeah, make it really hard to plan your life. Yeah. The 57 campuses are around, around the UK. UK. Yeah. 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 You know, there's, there's folks in Northern Ireland. I saw my friends in, in Belfast, I think, on the back yeah. with folks over there too. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's a really spread out big strike that's going on in the middle of this general election. Exactly. Um, exactly. So what... Sort of, what does that potentially mean? Like I, I, I assume that some cheery Labour Party candidates have been turning up on picket lines. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we had the member uh, for Poplar at our strike uh, yesterday, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we did a lot of uh, voter registration. So the first two days of the strike um, were days where you could still register to vote. So uh, we did a lot of talking to students as they were coming in the gate to find out if they were registered to vote. Um, and in the lead up to the strike, we've all uh, had slides about why we're going on strike and also how to register to vote as part of our lectures. So all of my lectures have started with five minutes uh, being set aside to register to vote. So we're all, uh, you know, kind of as encouraged by the University of Colleges Union really pushing um, young people to, to register to vote uh, as part of this. And we're trying to draw attention to the fact that uh, Corbyn, if elected, is promising to end casualization, casualized contracts in higher education. That was Claire English, who teaches at Queen Mary University of London and is a member of the University and College Union. And while we're at it, the UCU teamed up with a union you've heard about on Belabored before, the Independent Workers of Great Britain, or IWGB. The IWGB represents outsourced cleaners, security workers, and porters at University College London, and this Wednesday they took strike action alongside the UCU workers for the first joint action of directly employed and outsourced workers at the university. I joined their picket line outside of UCL and caught up with Amjad Khan, one of the security workers. Once again, apologies for the picket line noises, particularly a uh, rather loud horn that people kept honking. What we've been told is that they're using the word for, uh, parity, 
uh, you know, yeah. something similar. But we don't want similar. Yeah. We do the same job. Yeah. So we should be on a same package. <laughs> we do the same shifts and hourly ra uh, hour hours that we work, or maybe even more. Yeah. But we're not on the same terms and conditions. Right. We are not in house. Our jobs are not safe. Tomorrow they can pick on anyone for any minor thing yeah. and say to them that you know uh, don't come back to the site anymore. Yeah. And you you we can't afford that. Yeah. You know we can't we can't afford to uh, work one day less. We can't we won't be able to pay our rents. Um, it takes a big toll on us. But for them, you've got people that are off. Um, on minor issues, which maybe there might be major issues, but they have the freedom to say that they are not coming to work today mm -hmm. for months, for weeks. They know that they they are covered. They have all um, all the benefits. Yeah. We don't. We can't afford to do that. So yeah. Yeah. So today you're on strike. Mm -hmm. The lecturers are on strike. That's Tell right. Us about porters, the whole porters, cater, uh, catering staff security staff and the UCU uh, lectures and uh, academics, I believe they're also uh, on strike today. Uh, this is a joint strike, I believe it's the first one that's ever happened in the history of UCL. Uh, we're hard workers. We are the only workers that work throughout the whole year. Yeah. Even when the uh, college is closed, we work. Security is there 24-7, 365 yeah. days, yeah. day and night. But we're not in-house. Why? What's the reason? It's because it's profit. It's because they are saving so much. Yeah. It's because the senior management on a yearly basis, whatever increments they have, whatever holidays they get, yeah. you know, it's all hidden. It's all, you know, it's uh, it's unfair. Yeah. It's, it's, it's clearly unfair. Yeah. Well, that was Amjad Khan from IWGB, University of London branch. We will have more information about these strikes up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. Last weekend was bookended by Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and many of us shopped to our heart's delight online. And all of those instantaneous, seamless online transactions translated into some pretty Dickensian working conditions for the people at Amazon Fulfillment Centers. Amazon's own records, we now know, suggest that the pressure to process orders at a breakneck pace, packing hundreds of items per hour, has created some major hazards in the workplace. Workers have suffered strains and sprains while hauling boxes, getting crushed by machinery, all incidents documented in injury records reported by Reveal. Amazon has also been widely criticized for its massive carbon footprint. As both a huge employer and a retail outlet, people say it needs to be regulated, cut down to size, reined in, and unionized to ensure meaningful accountability. I spoke with a few people who have been involved in the effort to organize Amazon workers. Just before Black Friday, they launched a new grassroots coalition of labor and community groups across the country called Athena. We hear first from Juan Goris. He is an organizer with Make the Road New York. And then we hear from Zach Lerner of New York Communities for Change, which just put out a scathing report on the safety conditions at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island. So we've been speaking to workers for about five months about different issues, rates, but the issue that really took off and that really hit home for a lot of the workers was the bus issue, which a lot of workers commuted from like the Bronx, Brooklyn, even as far as like Linden, New Jersey, Far Rockway, and like their commute being like three to two and a half hours um, was something that a lot of workers really wanted to organize around. And also their breaks 
where a lot of workers have reported that they have two 50-minute breaks, but it's not really 50 minutes because to the lunchroom itself, it's about seven minutes to walk there and like seven minutes back, and you have to be at your station at exactly at the 15 minutes or you'll be uh, clocked as time off task in which you get three of those write-ups, you're fired without um, immediately, like on the spot. So that was something that a lot of workers were extremely upset around. And for two months, we were able to bring a, a ton of workers uh, into a committee, speak about this issue, and put this um, plan to action that led up to the rally um, yesterday. How do you see the campaign moving forward now? I mean, do you feel like uh, you're, you'll be able to get Amazon to sit down and negotiate with you? Or how do you expect to sort of advance this campaign? The initial reaction from workers that were at the action and workers who were, didn't make it to the action has been uh, amazing. I just, uh, my phone has been blowing up with like workers so pumped up about everything that's being made public and everybody knows what's actually happening there. Uh, and I think workers, and as we know, that uh, Amazon is just not going to give up these demands without a fight. So workers know that it's going to take them coming together and continue to put pressure and like more actions, more rallies, uh, and continue to organize their co-workers to actually bring Amazon to the table to sit down with them to win these demands. So I think workers are uh, no disillusion that just this action alone is going to make Amazon give them what they want. And uh, now you're part of that national network, right, Athena? So you have a broader coalition of people to apply pressure? That's really a fascinating part of the campaign of us. We've connected and we've had a webcam meetings with um, Minnesota workers, with uh, New York City workers, just to speak to each other, make those connections. And, you know, them speaking like, yeah, we have like the same issues that you're facing. We just happen to be somewhere else. And it's inspiring New York City workers to see what has been done in Minnesota, the changes that they were able to win of parking, prayer rooms, longer breaks. So there is kind of a blueprint that if workers just continue to put pressure on Amazon, that uh, they will concede to their demand. We put out this report focusing specifically on the uh, Staten Island warehouse that's known as JFK 8 for Amazon. Because, you know, as we've been, uh, you know, supporting workers there and their organizing, we've noticed how much uh, workers were just telling us how much, how many injuries were happening every single day there. And, you know, encountering workers who, you know, had our workers comp for months because of the injuries they suffered at Amazon, where you can buy and receive, like, you know, ibuprofen and Tylenol and Aleve just on the floor, on the workshop floor because they just know how much people are straining their bodies from this work. And so, you know, from this, when we started digging in, we had uh, one of our former workers actually submit for the OSHA 300 request there. You know, we were able to uncover just how high the injury rate was uh, in 2018 at the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island, in which I think as you probably saw in the report, you know, they had the OSHA... uh, you know, total recordable incident rate was 15.2, which means 15.2 out of every 100 workers there suffered an injury that made made it so they had to take days from work, in which the average ends up being 64.04 days of work that people had to miss because of injuries 
um, at that warehouse last year during peak season. So, you know, including as part of this, right, you know, there's ended up being uh, 17 workers during peak season last year who were never able to actually return to work. So it just goes to show just like what the conditions are like at, uh, you know, the warehouse on Staten Island. Do you have any sense of what the turnover is like there? Or is, is it like a place where people just like work a few months and then they're like totally exhausted and broken and then they quit? Yeah, it's just, it's super common to end up running into people who had only been there for a week or like it's seen as like being a veteran there if you survived even a few months. So the turnover is incredibly high because of just how strenuous the work is and and I guess to your earlier point, yeah, Amazon, when we did the rally um, and workers did the petition delivery, so we had 600 petitions where workers are asking for two simple demands, one around just increasing the two 15-minute breaks they have to two 30-minute breaks, because right now, you know, they only have those 15-minute breaks in the lunch room and the lunch break, and this is for an entire 10-hour day or 11-hour day where you're on your feet the entire time. And for many of these workers, it takes up to it can take like five minutes just to get to a break room so they end up just sitting down at their workstation because they don't have enough time to just actually rest their bodies and so you know asking for that and then also asking around just uh for many of the workers you know i don't i'm not sure if you've been to staten island but this is in a very not near anything part of staten island for many workers the only the only way back into from work is from uh the bus and that has 47 stops between the warehouse and the Staten Island Ferry. So just to get to the ferry after work, it could take an hour or more. And so workers are demanding that, you know, Amazon actually work with the MTA and ATU, which is the union that represents the bus operators, who actually also came to the rally yesterday in support of the workers and their demand for this to actually give out shift changes and actually figure out how they can make a more efficient way so that workers can actually get home instead of being, you know, stuck in transit for like two and a half hours just to get to Queens or the Bronx. And now we hear from Andre Garcia. He's a former Amazon worker and an organizer in San Bernardino in California. Local activists there are working to challenge plans to build a massive logistics hub in the region, which will serve to facilitate Amazon's expansion. We're not looking to halt the project or or say to Amazon, you know, y'all can't come here. We don't want you here. It's that if you're going to come into our backyard, then you ought to have some set of priorities in terms of how you're going to help us out. We know that Amazon, Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. He didn't get that way by, um, you know, like helping the community at every opportunity that he gets. Amazon doesn't pay taxes. It's an issue that we know that they have the coin to put up some realistic resources to to invest in the comp- in the city in a realistic way um, because we're San Bernardino is just a small town you know like we're we're a big city but we have small town um, characteristics and and I say that because we've been mired by economic and fiscal irresponsibility for decades we came out of a recession and we, and we also filed bankruptcy during that time. So we're, we're a city that's still, you know, like it's almost like we're a fledgling city. We haven't yet, you know, experienced a lot of, um, you know, infrastructural, like, um, like overhauls or anything. Our downtown has looked the same for decades. So 
our concern is is not to say to Amazon or to say to whichever tenant um, that is going to be, uh, you know, like uh, taking up that space. Our, our, our intention is not to say no, but it's to say to pump the brakes and first first let's let's understand the environmental impacts because that didn't quite happen. Um, like a lot of other development deals that happen in the Inland Empire and specifically San Bernardino, uh, these deals get just jammed through and they get jammed through before the public has an, any idea or any inclination as to the effects of the project itself. And right now, or actually back in August, we were asking them, Hey, can you pump the brakes? Because this doesn't seem like it's, it's the best approach to just pop these buildings up and, and, uh, and just set up shop. Because that's that's something that if you know anybody who's lived in in um, in the Inland Empire at all, you they can attest to the fact that warehouses go up, you know, very quickly, and it's it's an alarming rate at which you know um, whole distribution centers and and whole industrial corridors pop up out of nowhere, where there used to be orange groves and and citrus trees are now it now sits you know like uh 700,000 square foot warehouses and the concrete warehouse um buildings in general they they add to to heat for the city you know it, it's a it's an environmental concern of the utmost and 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 we're just trying to um trying to get uh, our our community back from this chokehold that Amazon has us in because we don't have uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things to to look forward to in the city. As in, graduates aren't staying in the city; they're they're moving to places like Seattle or they're moving to places like San Francisco um, or especially LA. So there, there's not a lot of um, care being put into these deals, and that's what we're looking for: is for for whatever corporation to come in that we're looking for them to actually care about the city. And you just heard Andre Garcia. He's a local activist in San Bernardino with the Teamsters. Before that, you heard Zach Lerner with New York Communities for Change. And before that, Juan Goris of Make the Road New York. A couple of weeks ago, I traveled to Erie, Pennsylvania, to the home of United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Local 506, where in addition to obsessing over the gorgeous Union Hall mural, I took part in a conversation over a couple of days about how labor can fight the far-right nationalist narrative in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. As part of the event, I hosted an evening conversation with Eugenio Nacia Tovar, an legal advisor to the Frente Autentico del Trabajo, or FAT, in Mexico. Louise Castleman of the Public Service Alliance in Canada, and Tom Bobrovich of UE Local 506. We bring you that discussion now. Be aware that some of this conversation takes place in Spanish with translation immediately following. Hi, I'm Sarah. You all heard from me a little bit earlier. Um, I am having a great time here and want to say thank you one more time to Local 506 for hosting us. Bearing us um, and, yeah, helping put all this together. So um, I'm going to introduce folks very briefly to my, nobody's really to my right, but <laughs> to my immediate right, 
If, uh, it's Tom Bobrovich. Am I saying Bobrovich, that right? Yeah. Bobrovich. Okay. Who is local 506 vice president. Um, I have Louise Castleman, who is a social justice fund officer at the Public Service Alliance of Canada. And the gentleman who's going to start us all off, and I'm going to hand like three microphones to, is uh, Eugenio, Eugenio Narcia Tovar, who is a labor attorney and legal advisor for the FATS. La solidaridad en el apoyo a las luchas laborales trinacionales. En México estamos estrenando a partir del primero de mayo una reforma a la Ley Federal del Trabajo. En México estamos comenzando una reforma, comenzando en el próximo año, una que es precisamente producto de esa solidaridad trinacional. Which is the product of that solidarity, uh, trinational solidarity. Para ubicar la trascendencia de la lucha que se ha realizado coordinadamente entre los sindicatos de los tres países. To put in transcendence the effort that has been done by unions of the three countries. Y esencialmente esa hermandad entre el FAT la UE y los Steelworkers de Canadá. Que se fortaleció a partir de la firma del TLC. Which was strengthened since the signature of the TN. Pero que venía desde, desde antes. Es importante partir de tres escenarios. So it's important to start from three different scenarios. Escenarios del modelo laboral en México. Escenarios uh, from the uh, uh, labor, uh, labor model from Mexico. El primer escenario es el previo a la firma de los tratados de libre comercio. The first scenario is previous to the uh, signature of the uh, uh, market agreements. Estamos hablando de los años 70, de los años 80. We're talking about the 70s and the 80s. En donde teníamos en México una economía cerrada. Where we had in Mexico a closed economy. En donde lo que se producía en México se consumía en México. Where what it was produced in Mexico, it was consumed in Mexico. Teníamos una autonomía alimentaria en donde México producía eh, eh, el maíz que consumía. So we had uh, autonomy in production of the corn that it was consumed by Mexicans. Teníamos un movimiento sindical que era mayoritariamente corporativo. We had a union, uh, 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 union movement which was in, in its majority a uh, corporativo, corporativo. Corporative. Corporate. Eh, ligado al partido del Estado, al PRI, en donde eh, teníamos una estructura totalmente patriarcal, totalmente autoritaria, pero pero en donde eh, 
los eh, pocos sindicatos independientes entre ellos los sindicatos afiliados al FAD los sindicatos universitarios empezaron a realizar eh, los primeros acercamientos en la solidaridad internacional con la CECEN de, de Quebec con eh, algunos sindicatos norteamericanos con, con la CECEN de Canadá con los Steelworkers de Canadá con la, eh, algunos sindicatos norteamericanos como la UI empiezan los inicios de, 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 de los primeros acercamientos también a nivel latinoamericano pero este, este modelo en donde el, el, el FAT y algunos sindicatos independientes luchaban por democratizar por la libertad sindical frente a un sindicalismo oficial autoritario pero que tenía mucho control político y en donde había una gran industria mexicana que tenían los propios mexicanos quienes consumían sus productos se transforma cuando se empiezan a, a, a los, los tratados, cuando se firma el Tratado de Libre Comercio y cuando México abre sus fronteras al, a, a, a mercancías de otros países. Y la autonomía alimentaria que tenía México en ese momento del frijol y del, y del maíz se va transformando en una dependencia económica sobre todo alimentaria y actualmente la mayor parte del maíz que se consume en el país viene de Estados Unidos y se ha transformado el papel de México de, 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 del país y también se ha modificado su modelo sindical muchos empleos de la gran industria como la industria ulera se perdieron desaparecieron y se dio paso a la industria maquiladora en donde el destinatario esencial de lo que se producía en México viene a ser el mercado norteamericano Canadá y Estados Unidos eso conlleva la precarización de los salarios de los obreros mexicanos y pasamos de los años 70 de tener un salario mínimo 
que satisfacía, satisfacía las, las um, necesidades esenciales de una familia a tener el salario más bajo to have the lowest salary, no solamente de Latinoamérica sino del mundo y precisamente el, el, el escenario del mundo sindical también sufrió transformaciones pasó de ese sindicalismo corporativo oficial fuerte pero con interés más político que sindical de ese sindicalismo autoritario, patriarcal, corporativo, a un sindicalismo de protección patronal, un sindicalismo que no tiene vinculación con los trabajadores, y en el que el patrón escoge desde antes de, de, de poner la primera piedra de su, de su negocio cuando está diseñando el modelo de negocios escoge qué sindicato va a querer para sus trabajadores firma el contrato colectivo sin tener un solo trabajador y los sindicatos no viven de las cuotas sindicales porque no se le descuenta cuotas sindicales a los trabajadores porque de esa manera no saben que están sindicalizados. Y así tenemos empresas que en Norteamérica se vanaglorían o se ufanan de no tener sindicatos como Walmart. En México tienen sindicatos, pero de, de protección patronal. Se precariza y se introduce una figura que ha sido muy dañina a, 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 para, para los trabajadores. El famoso outsourcing o terciarización. Y en donde en este, en este momento el modelo laboral se caracteriza por salarios bajos condiciones de trabajo que son también bajas o malas no solamente porque se trabajan con horarios muy amplios sino también bajo condiciones de seguridad e higiene inferiores a las que deberían de realizarse y además un incumplimiento sistemático de los derechos elementales en materia colectiva 
and also a systematic way of not um, applying the uh, rights for the workers. Un, un, una, un esquema en el que las huelgas no son reconocidas por el Estado. Basta leer los informes de los presidentes de las, de las juntas, que son los órganos que se encargan de llevar los juicios laborales. En donde ellos dicen que jamás, que, que durante el periodo de 2000, en adelante, del año 2000 en adelante, no hubo ninguna huelga en el país. Lo cual contrasta con la realidad de las huelgas de los mineros, de los universitarios. La otra eh, violación que se da a derechos elementales es el de la libertad sindical. Porque el patrón escoge a qué sindicato se van a afiliar sus trabajadores. Sin que los trabajadores sepan que están afiliados a ese sindicato. Y la contratación colectiva es celebrada a espaldas de los trabajadores. Reproduciendo las condiciones mínimas Reproducing the uh, minimal conditions que contempla la, la ley de federal de trabajo. That the, uh, the uh, federal law of, for labor contemplates. La única manera en que se rompe esta, 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 esta situación incorrecta. The only way that we can break with this uh, situation which is, is not correct is wrong. O situación de simulación. The situation that is not, that is not right es a través de la solidaridad internacional is, uh, the, uh, la presión que se ejerce al gobierno mexicano las condiciones con las que se negocia el nuevo tratado de libre comercio y en donde Después de la experiencia que tienen los sindicatos, ustedes, los sindicatos de Canadá y Estados Unidos, después de 25 años de ver cómo eh, México precariza la situación laboral, de conflictos en los que fueron testigos la misma UI, eh, la, la misma CCN, la misma, los mismos Steelworkers, de procesos que se dieron en muchas fábricas para sindicalizarse. Para, para pasar de un sindicato de protección patronal to pass from a union, uh, of, uh, 
a un sindicato independiente que defienda a los trabajadores. La reforma que se publicó el primero de mayo de, de 2019 incorpora muchas de estas luchas solidarias teniendo como bandera esencial el respeto a la libertad sindical y garantizar la negociación colectiva auténtica y se pone al trabajador en el centro del mundo del trabajo se empodera a las personas trabajadoras para que sean estas las que decidan sobre su vida colectiva y para garantizar esto se incorporan figuras novedosas para que haya certeza de que los contratos colectivos van a ser celebrados por voluntad de los trabajadores de manera pública para que de esa forma si existe algún grupo de trabajadores que se está organizando de manera independiente in an independent way, puedan participar de ese proceso de sindicalización y a través de, una, de un recuento o una consulta mediante voto libre, personal, directo y secreto los trabajadores decidan cuál es el sindicato que los vaya a representar the en workers, la contratación colectiva pero además también se contemplan figuras, dos figuras muy importantes para que los trabajadores decidan el contenido de los contratos colectivos. Antes de la reforma, el líder tenía facultad plenipotenciarias plenas para firmar lo que quisiera a nombre del sindicato. Sin consultar a los trabajadores. Con la, a partir de la reforma, cada todos los contratos nuevos y cada revisión de los contratos colectivos que ya existen tiene que ser aprobada por la mayoría de los trabajadores y además se dio un plazo de cuatro años 
time frame of 40 years given para que los contratos colectivos so that the, uh, existentes which are, uh, in place right now, puedan ser legitimados. They, they can be, they could be Porque la mayoría son, se habla entre el 95 y 96% de los contratos en México son contratos colectivos de protección patronal. Y los trabajadores tendrán la oportunidad de decidir si quieren seguir con ese contrato o no. Finalmente, Finally, se está incorporando también en la ley also in the law, el voto libre, personal, directo y secreto. The, the, uh, free, personal and direct vote. And secret. Secret. secret para la elección de los dirigentes For the of the that will lead. para dar la oportunidad de que si un dirigente sindical no realiza su labor correctamente los trabajadores puedan cambiar por otro líder que sí lo, lo haga The workers can uh, elect another leader that would do what he's supposed to do. Adicionalmente, Additionally, se, se incorporan reglas de transparencia y rendición de cuentas sobre los recursos de los sindicatos. There's new laws that uh, they have to do with transparency that has to do with the uh, rules of the uh, unions. Algo importantísimo. Something very important. Porque en muchos de los sindicatos, el patrimonio del, sindica del sindicato es patrimonio del líder. Ahora se rompe esa posibilidad y se da la opción de que los trabajadores sancionen a los líderes que están utilizando mal los recursos del sindicato. Al final de cuentas, esta reforma nos muestra que la solidaridad internacional es fundamental para la consolidación del empleo para tener un empleo digno y trascender con ese empleo digno a una vida digna para, los, para las personas trabajadoras y sus familias que es el objetivo que tenemos en México en Canadá y en Estados Unidos el empleo es, important, es importantísimo porque del empleo es de donde una familia puede subsanar sus gastos básicos y elementales y finalmente esta reforma también incorpora aspectos de género and finally, this reform incorporates, uh, uh, gender subjects. para evitar en los temas de hostigamiento sexual to avoid, uh, subjects such as, uh, para que haya una representatividad 
eh, un, una representatividad eh, porcentual de las trabajadoras en las dirigencias sindicales. So there could be a um, percentage of representative for uh, female workers in these unions. Proporcionalmente al número de trabajadoras que hay en el centro de trabajo. Y además, also, se toman medidas protectoras para las, trabaja los trabaja los, las personas eh, que laboran en labores domésticas. Gracias al nombre de los trabajadores Thank y trabajadoras mexicanas. Well, thank you very much, and thanks to my brother for his comments, which are very important. Um, I just want to go over some of the uh, history, briefly, of the anti-free trade work and the work that brought many of our organizations to work so closely with the organizations in Mexico in that period. Maybe look at the, the, the periods of, of great strength and then the periods of waning relationships and why perhaps some of those relationships have been lost. What does that mean to the trade union movement? Why did that happen? And where we are today, and maybe fast forward into looking not so much about what went wrong, but what we can do today to improve and uh, grow on that uh, history. Um, I was involved in that early work, so I'm going to talk about my experience. It was in 91. It was in the 80s that we began to work closely with the Federation, the FAT, and this May, and the nuclear workers, and the many democratic organizations that existed at the time, and they were having a very difficult time, but they were, they were organizations we could work with. And it wasn't until 91 where we actually developed, I would say, out of Canada, a very strong kind of common front uh, of many organizations, of all the major trade union organizations, environmental groups, women's groups, the Council of Canadians, Action Canada Network, all of the organizations that had regrouped and formed a very massive front in Canada against the bilateral agreement with the United States. So already there was a very strong organization in Canada that was nationwide, included Quebec, and that were prepared to, uh, they wanted to find ways to reach organizations in Mexico. Outside of the CSN, there weren't really many relationships. The CSN was one of the first to develop those strong relationships with the FAT, but there were no other relationships. But I was in Mexico at the time, and we were able to begin developing more ties. And groups, uh, organizations, and individual leaders came down, and we began conversations with the FAT, the, Stu the STUNAM, and a number of organizations. Um, a number of organizations so that we could uh, start develop, bringing a message to Mexico about we have to be careful. We think there's a tri-national agreement that's coming and it's, it spells bad things for the union movement and many other organizations. At first our message was not well received, to be honest, but the Mexicans said you just want to keep the jobs. I remember that very, very distinctly because I was in the room when some of the unions said this. and And the Canadians that were there from the organization said, no, we swear, yes, we're going to lose jobs, but so will you. And I think the brother has given us ample evidence of what happened to destroy the livelihood of many, many uh, Mexican workers, probably more than 
the destruction of jobs in Canada or the United States. And a lot of people don't understand that about what happened in Mexico under the free trade. But anyway, by 91, we were in conditions. There was over 100 Canadian organizations that came to Mexico, thanks to the FAT and others who received us. And the meeting took place in Huastepec. And it was the first, it was only like 20 or 25 organizations on the Mexican end and 100 Canadian <laughs> organizations there. And the Mexicans were so surprised by how intense the Canadian fight back strategy was that they, we began to really develop strong relationships. And by 93, I think the REMAC, the Mexican network against um, free trade, the RECIC in Quebec, a similar network, uh, Canadian Common Frontiers and other organizations, including the ARC, ARC, no, ARC in um, in the United States began to work together. We really developed a very, very strong uh, coalition, tri-national coalition like we've never had, and it lasted for many, many years. In the United States, it changed formations. Different groups at different times participated. Canada pretty well with the same um, actors. And um, then, of course, they came along with new trade agreements, and they talked about developing the, the what is it, the trade union uh, across the Americas, the MAI, and other movements, which really galvanized everybody in the hemisphere to work together. So that was the heydays of the large coalition of popular organizations working together. It was a very, very hopeful time. It was. The coalitions were strong. We had our differences. We worked them out. We moved forward. I, I can't remember anything like this in the history of popular movements in the Americas. And um, eventually, I don't know, in part, the fatigue factor, in part, the, the loss of a kind of financing for this type of work, the loss of cadre that just burnt out. We weren't able to maintain those strong relationships, and also because Wars in Central America were heating up. Uh, there was other attentions. Colombia, uh, the free trade agreement with Canada, Colombia became a central area of struggle because we knew that if Canada bent, the U.S. would sign an agreement. So we felt a duty to ch shift focus and to work very much on the Colombia, to stop the Colombia free trade deal. And we stopped it for two years. But it took an incredible amount of work. And what I want to say about that work is that Certainly from the Public Service Alliance of Canada, which had not been involved in some of those large organizations at the beginning, took a central role with the Canadian Union of Public Employees and the postal workers in Canada, the CUPW, to develop very strong links with public sector workers in Colombia. And then we expanded with that relationship to work with indigenous groups that were fighting Canadian petroleum and oil companies. And to this day, we actually were able to maintain with Colombia some of the strongest uh, bilateral work we've ever developed. It's still going, and we're still working together with a large plethora of organizations that have different political agendas, but they're all unions, they're all indigenous groups, they all have a base, they're all you know, democratic and with different political options, and we, that is not important. And we've been able to overcome, uh, you know, what do you call that, um, when we fight about stuff that's not really important, sectarian and all that. So it, it, it's to me still, I, I look at that work as really being a, a lesson for us. And it, it's brought me to look today at what, what happened to the work and thinking maybe we need to 
not only look at that history, but see where, how we can improve on it and move forward. And I'm thinking, obviously, climate can, the climate struggle can bring us together. It's an issue that is so important to not just unions, unions should be more engaged in it than they already are, but with many elements of the population that we haven't been able or we haven't been able to work with or haven't even found ways to work together on. On issues of just transition for workers is very important, but we also have to look at impacts on Aboriginal communities of decisions that our governments take to, you know, support an infrastructural project wherever it is in, in Mexico, in Colombia, wherever, to plow to, to, to divert rivers, to create hydroelectric projects for the mining industry, et cetera. So we have new challenges that really are calling upon us to really look at this way to work together again in a much more organized fashion and increase our ranks. The environmental work poses very important questions to us, and that has to do with environmental racism, so that it opens up our trade union work to the issue of equity and work more strongly in strengthening the equity groups within our own uh, movements, and and not just within our own movements, but the equity groups that are working outside the trade union movement to advance the positions and the rights of equity groups uh, in Canada, in Mexico, in the United States, wherever. And I think that that gives us a certain future to look forward to because those groups have a lot of a lot to say to all of us, and they have. Not that they have power, but they have a certain um, energy and a fight-back strategy that's very important that we can learn from as unions. And I'm very proud that my union has been working very hard on the issue of equity and has really changed things in the public service in terms of hiring practices and, and equity rights within the federal public service. A lot more has to be done, but we have done a lot, and I'm very proud of that work as a union because the public service wouldn't have done anything if it wasn't for the pushback of the union movement on those issues. So I wanted to call attention to that and to say that I, I'm not going to speak about all the things I wanted to say, but one last thing. I think that the fight around public services and the public domain is still very, very key. And um, it's not just that we're against privatizing. We don't want private workers, you know, people to work in private firms. No, we want everything under the state control. Obviously not. But we want to maintain, you know, food safety. We want to maintain, uh, you know, our, our parklands. We want to maintain environmental standards that are that are set not by the industry but by the public, etc. So the public domain is very, very important. And, um, you know, the new regulatory framework that the WTO started developing since its inception in 91, whatever year it was, at 95, I think it was created, and now all the trade agreements that have come since, really attack the possibility of any country to develop policies to protect the public, to protect your food, to protect your health, education, you name it. And it's serious. All of our regulatory frameworks are up for grabs. They're all being undermined by trade agreements. And this is an area where we need to fight back because it has an impact on private sector workers and public sector workers. And non-working people has an impact on, on indigenous communities, has an impact on everyone, on women, on equity groups. So I think it's an area that we can look at. And the digital um, colonization, it could be called, is control 
over data is very serious because if countries don't have control over their own data, they can't make policies because they don't control information about their own uh, countries and their own food supplies and everything else. So data collection by, by corporations that want to digitalize everything and move data wherever they want because it's in their hands, the Googles of the world or whatever, all the platforms that we know of, is a very, very serious fight for the, I think, for the survival of, of, of rights. And uh, so anyway, I'll leave it there and just say that um, I, think, I think the call from the Mexican colleagues that have come a long way to speak to us is so important. And I think that we have to take it uh, very seriously and find ways that we can answer uh, the concerns you've raised, like how can we support you in this very important struggle. And you don't have a long time, a long window, or whatever the expression is, uh, to act. So we hope we can be there for you. Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to echo a little bit of what Matt uh, McCracken talked about earlier, and, and it's uh, pretty much the, uh, what led up to our, our fight here in Erie with uh, the company WebTech. Um, and I'm going to try to uh, relate it to some of the solidarity actions we took, uh, both uh, domestically and internationally. Um, shortly after uh, John Flannery took over the helm of the mighty General Electric following uh, Jeff Imelt's retirement in the summer of 2017, he announced that some of GE's businesses were going to be going up for sale. Uh, General or GE Transportation was one of those businesses. Uh, speculation and rumors were running rampant in the factory as to what would happen. Tensions were high. Some looked at this as a welcoming event one that would be a new beginning with a new employer. Others had deep concerns of uh, what was to come. Finally, in May of uh, 2018, we were informed by the company that the buyer was going to be Wabtec, a current supplier of GE Transportation. With this acquisition, acquisition or merger, Wabtec would double in size and enter the Fortune 500. The Erie plant would be bigger than anything that they currently owned or managed. We often joked about how Wabtec bought a Ferrari, but they only had ever driven a Ford, and they wouldn't even know where to put the key into it to turn it on. <laughs> Unfortunately, that joke has turned into a reality. As soon as we found out that Wabtec was a buyer, we, we requested that GE management set up a meeting between the union and the new company. Because of our international solidarity with uh, unions around the world and industrial, our international rep, uh, John Thompson, was able to reach out to them and, and try to gather information on Wabtec's international businesses and open the doors for possible global action. After hearing every excuse in the book about why, why Wabtec couldn't meet with us, we were finally granted that meeting on December 13th. 2019, seven months after the merger announcement. Now you'd think a company would want to meet with the union representing its largest workforce right off the bat, but not Wabtec. Remember that Ferrari joke I just said? So we finally get to meet Wabtec, who turned out to be three of the soon former, or soon to be former GE executives 
and one hired attorney from the Jones Day law firm, a, no a notorious union-busting law firm. Absolutely no one from Wabtec management team came to this meeting. The attorney came armed with a copy of what he referred to as the new terms and conditions of employment. And he informed us that these were the terms that we would be working under once the merger was complete. The terms he presented were completely unacceptable to say the least. We requested that in the name of labor peace that the company consider running under the terms of our existing contract with GE until it expired in June of 2019, giving us ample time to bargain a new contract. They refused and insisted that Wabtec was not GE. So we had to request bargaining with a new company, and under the terms of the merger, the new company was required to bargain with this union. They agreed to bargain, but chose not to meet again until late in January of 2019. They would not give us a date when the merger was going to take place, and they insisted that they did not know the exact date. Again, the Ferrari. Upon entering, entering bargain, bargaining, we quickly realized that we were in for a fight. The new company basically took the position that we were going to have to bargain our, our way out of the basement and start from scratch. We stressed over and over again that we would not give up the 82 years of gains and language that had made GE Transportation one of GE's most profitable divisions, the Ferrari. They wouldn't budge. We asked some of our political allies to reach out to the Wabtec leadership and voice our concerns. Our goal was to protect our workers, protect our community, and build a new relationship with this new employer so that they could reap the benefits of what we are capable of doing for them. Unfortunately, the new employer tried to bully their way into our community. Well, like most bullies, they got what they were looking for, a fight. We bargained with them right up and even beyond the merger deadline, but they refused to budge off several critical areas of the terms and conditions. Mandatory overtime, temporary employees, drastic pay cuts for new and existing employees. Literally 50% of existing wages were what they were looking to do. The merger closing date turned out to be February 25th of this year, and we were ready for them. Two days prior to the announced date, this union held meetings to present to the membership what the new terms and conditions would be upon the merger date. Almost every member attended these meetings, and they voted overwhelmingly to give the executive board the authority to call an open-ended strike if necessary upon the close of the merger on February 25th. We bargained with the company right up to and past midnight on the 25th, but could not come to an agreement. So at 2.30 a.m., the decision was made to go on strike. The executive board put the announcement out through the steward system, and by 6 a.m., our members had left the plant and set up pickets at every single entrance into that plant. This was the start of our nine-day occupation of the plant gates. Nine bitter, cold days standing outside in solidarity, 24 hours a day. The new company was shown the resolve of this membership. What came next was nothing short of incredible. 
but very showing of how the citizens of our community and communities around this country, as well as communities around the world, are fed up with the corporate status quo. The support locally was unbelievable. Hot food, pizzas by the hundreds, donuts, coffee, hot chocolate, cases of water, cases of soda, hand warmers, dump truck loads of firewood, members of the community and their children joining the picketers on the picket line, other local unions joining our picket line in solidarity. Uh, uniform members came from Canada to join the fight. Pictures and letters of solidarity from our comrades all over the world were pouring in and being posted all over social media. Our message was universal and workers around the world are fed up and we're not going to keep taking the abuse. Our fight brought us national attention as we became the first union in American history to be asked by a presidential candidate to open up their campaign. In the first few days of the strike, our president, Scott Slauson, spoke in front of a crowd of over 20,000 in Brooklyn, New York, where Senator Bernie Sanders was announcing his intent to become the president of the United States and vowed to fight for workers' rights and labor unions. The senator even opened up his social media platform to us to help us spread our message. Solidarity actions held at WAPTEC's headquarters in Wilmerding, Pennsylvania, as well as their shareholders meeting in downtown Pittsburgh, also played a large hand in ending the strike. Their unions, politicians, and activists from all over the Pittsburgh region joined our members as well as members of UE610 in protest of the company's actions here in Erie. In September of this year, the officers of UE506 along with our international rep, John Thompson, drove five hours to Windsor, Ontario to join our brothers and sisters in uniform in solidarity on their picket line. They were holding a rally outside of a factory that they had walked out of and barricaded on Labor Day in protest of the company's announcement of a plant closure and relocation of the work to uh, Mexico in violation of their collective bargaining agreement. Uniform members could not believe we were there, and they were more than appreciative. We told them we were all in this fight together. In October, General Motors workers walked, or General Motors workers represented by the UAW were on strike all over the country. Some of our members decided to take a road trip to join the striking workers on their picket line. Upon arriving at the picket line in Parma, Ohio, they were welcomed with open arms. They also ran into other UE members and staff who were there for the same reason, solidarity. A few days later, as you heard, Brother Matt McCracken was vacationing in Michigan and he decided to take an afternoon to join the striking UAW workers at the Flint GM plant. The show of solidarity was greatly appreciated by the UAW members in Flint. In the end, we were able to uh, show, or we were able to use this show of support and solidarity to retain most of what we had in the, in the contract with our previous employer. We were also able to show that this fight wasn't only about the blue collar workers here in Erie. This fight was about workers' rights all around the world and the communities they live in. Solidarity. Thank you. 
That was a conversation in Erie, Pennsylvania on international solidarity from picket lines to policy with Eugenio Nicia-Tovar, Louise Castleman, and Tom Bobrowicz. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for this week is The Forgotten Origins of Paid Family Leave by Mona Siegel in The New York Times. A couple of weeks ago, the issue of paid family leave got a rare moment in the spotlight when candidates on the presidential debate stage were asked how they plan to support parents of newborns. The question underscored how backwards the U.S. is in lacking a basic national paid family leave law, thanks in large part to the persistence of patriarchy in our politics. But in reality, the conversation around paid family leave began a long time ago, like a century ago, exactly before women got the right to vote. Siegel looks at a landmark decree in 1919 called the Maternity Protection Convention. It was an initiative of the International Labor Organization, calling for, quote, 12 weeks of paid maternity leave, free medical care during and after pregnancy, job guarantees upon return to work, and periodic breaks to nurse infant children, unquote. Sounds pretty progressive for 1919. In the century since, the convention was adopted by many countries, and they built on that foundation by offering extended leave programs and more social benefits. In the U.S., it's a different story. The Democratic candidates are mostly in favor of three months of paid family leave max, and others have gone as far as six months. Overall, the U.S. has a lot of catching up to do. The first push for paid family leave emerged in the aftermath of the mayhem of World War I. The governments of Europe, and to some degree the U.S., were under pressure to recognize women's contributions to the wartime mobilization, since they had taken up jobs in munitions factories and helped keep the economy afloat while men were busy killing each other in the trenches. The initiative for setting an international standard for paid leave started with the creation of the International Labor Organization. Women in the trade union movement were incensed that the leadership of the ILO was completely male. Angry French female labor activists led the charge, and soon two U.S. labor activists, Mary Anderson and Rose Schneiderman, one of the leaders of the garment workers movement in New York City, crossed the Atlantic to make their case. And they challenged them, demanding equal representation. Although the activists did not manage to get direct representation in the ILO Commission, they did dramatically boost the role of women in the labor movement and set in motion an extraordinary wave of international mobilization. Siegel writes, quote, The National Women's Trade Union League of America issued a call to female trade unionists and their allies in 44 countries, inviting them to Washington to participate in the first International Congress of Working Women. It was time, they said, for working women to, quote, assume responsibilities in the affairs of the world, unquote. In response, more than 200 women from Europe, Asia, and North and South America descended on the capital in late October 1919. Jeanne Bouvier served as the standout delegate from France. Mary MacArthur came from Britain with her infant daughter in her arms. Tanaka Taka, a professor of social work at the Women's University in Tokyo, was four months pregnant when she traveled by ship all the way from Japan. Bouvier, MacArthur, and Tanaka were among the 23 women who served double duty as delegates to the Women's Congress and as non-voting advisors to their nation's respective delegations to the ILO conference, unquote. Collectively, this international alliance of female labor leaders put maternity leave on the agenda. The ILO voted overwhelmingly to adopt the Maternity Protection Convention of 1919, and in the following decades, European, Latin American, Asian, and African countries signed on. According to Siegel, quote, by 2018, 33 of 34 member nations of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development guaranteed paid leave to working mothers. 32 of the 34 guaranteed paid leave for working fathers as well. To this day, the United States remains an outlier, unquote. 
And so now we celebrate the 100th year anniversary of the international convergence at which female labor activists started a global conversation on paid family leave and other family supports that help form a humane, fair labor system. So fast forward to 2019, there's a possibility that we might have a female president, and yet we're still just beginning that conversation on paid family leave. So why hasn't the debate gone anywhere in the U.S. in the past 100 years? probably has a lot to do with the growing disconnect between feminism and the labor movement that started decades ago, the domination of neoliberal ideology and patriarchal ideas of so-called family values in our government, and a generally paltry welfare state that often indirectly penalizes parents who are struggling to combine work with childcare due to strict means-testing regimes. And one underlying factor is this country's rather pathological addiction to the ideological canard of individualism. Good parents are supposed to tough it out on their own somehow and demonstrate self-reliance. But it was women working together, in mutual aid, across national divides, in a fiercely divided world, that really laid the foundation for our modern framework of social welfare. It may seem like we have a lot of work to do to catch up with the rest of the world here in the U.S., but we also have a very rich history of labor feminism that we can draw upon when envisioning a system of labor rights that protects the whole family. Recently, the internet broke a little bit when New York Magazine published an article with the headline, Will There Ever Be a Me Too-Style Movement for Bad Bosses? The answer is, of course, obvious. It's the labor movement. The headline was changed, but the fact remains that too many people see the labor movement still as a sort of identity movement for a certain type of worker and not a thing for them. White-collar workers are organizing in droves these days, despite this image, including, of course, at New York Magazine itself. And meanwhile, Kim Kelly has a great piece up at the New Republic pointing out the ways that unions have been fighting their own Me Too movement for years. It's titled, Labor Took On Bad Bosses Long Before Me Too. She writes, for example, about a campaign among hotel workers with Unite Here for panic buttons for the hotel workers who face sexual harassment or violence from hotel guests, a story that is frighteningly common. Kim writes, quote, The panic button is elegant in its simplicity. Hotel workers, particularly housekeepers and cleaners, are often on their own while performing their labor, a vulnerable position in view of the gendered and often racial power dynamics at play between them and the guests whose rooms they're cleaning. As the AFL-CIO noted on its blog, quote, there is a clear power imbalance between men who pay for hotel rooms and the women, often immigrants or women of color, who clean their rooms alone. So Unite Here workers in hotels often now carry a panic button, a GPS-enabled device that can be easily concealed in clothing to alert and direct hotel security guards whenever they feel unsafe on the job. It's akin to the line of devices marketed to seniors that transmit the message, I've fallen and I can't get up, except here its main purpose is to shut down creeps and protect workers from harm, end quote. There's plenty of awareness, particularly among frontline service workers, that sexual harassment is a constant part of the job. I worked for years as a server and hostess in restaurants and in retail, and it's always a joy to get harassment from both sides. I say that with so much sarcasm. From your boss, who tells you you'd make more money if you dressed sexier, that he hired you because you wore seamed stockings, that you should flirt harder for the tips. And then the customers take a cue from the boss that you are, as they say, on the menu. Fast food workers have been pressing the case through lawsuits as well as wildcat strikes, and restaurant workers are coming up with new ways to fight. Kim writes, quote, outside of fast food, other restaurant industry workers are organizing on a much more local level. In Philadelphia earlier this year, workers joined forces to launch the Coalition for Restaurant Safety and Health, CRSH, project to provide free anti-harassment trainings to restaurant employees and workers in order to combat the intolerably high rates of sexual harassment in the industry. 
The worker-led coalition includes a variety of legal and workers' rights organizations, as well as the Philadelphia chapters of Unite Here, the Re Restaurant Opportunity Center, and Philadelphia Against Sexual Violence, and has also partnered with a number of popular restaurants." End quote. The labor movement has at times deserved its reputation for ignoring these issues and has certainly had its own share of sexual harassment crises. Organizers too can wield power in situations where the incentive is to keep quiet for the sake of the movement. But it's also been for hundreds of years the way workers have fought back against those bad bosses. And service workers, many of them immigrant women, in particular have led the fight in recent years for unions to recognize that sexual harassment is an endemic problem, and it can also be a powerful reason to join a union. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on fighting right-wing nationalism through labor organizing, on the organizing at Google, on university struggles and outsourcing, and so on. Thank you again, as always, to Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis for editing us every single week. Thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you rate us on iTunes, share us with your friends, promote us on your Facebook page or Twitter page, or generally make propaganda on our behalf. And an extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you a belabored tote bag. We have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. Or you can join our new solidarity subscription program at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can, as always, email us at belabored.descentmagazine.org if you are a striking lecturer or computer programmer, a service worker, or parent organizing for family leave. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.